welcome my friends, my brothers, and my sisters, and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible, written hundreds, thousands of years ago, and yet is supposed to mean something to us today. I am your host, the dumb Christian, Jonathan, longtime listener, first-time caller, and today we are going to explore and try and wrap our heads around the Trinity of God. Might get a little excited, a little colorful, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. There's this very odd uh, concept conveyed through scripture, the idea of the Holy Trinity, God, one true God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although the word Trinity isn't used anywhere in the Bible, scripture does reveal three unique, distinct persons of God and identifies them each as part of the Godhead, one true God. And although I've heard several analogies and pictures and illustrations that try and help us wrap our head around what it means that God is a trinity of persons, um, they, they've they kind of left me feeling like, okay, that's great, but that doesn't really mean much to me. So for example, there's probably the most common one that I've heard, maybe you've heard it before, is the analogy of H2O. When you freeze it, it takes a solid form. When it's thawed, it takes a liquid form. And when you heat it up and evaporate it, it takes a gaseous form. All three forms are still H2O in their substance, even though they're unique. They have unique features, solid, liquid, gas. And for some people, that might be really helpful. To me, it makes it feel like trying to understand God is a little intangible, a little removed, because H2O is an inanimate object. It doesn't interact with me. It's not, it has no real personal value. Sure, water keeps us alive, but it doesn't really mean much to try and understand God through water. So, today, we are going to try and wrap our heads around this idea by looking at the word. And so the Bible is about to get real. So hi let's go. In the first verse of the Bible, there is a Hebrew word translated God, and that is the Hebrew word Elohim. It is a plural noun. God wanted the first time he was revealed to people to be understood that he is a plurality of persons. Scripture identifies three unique persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are a few times in Scripture where we actually see them referenced together. One is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. He says, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. But there are there there's a, a couple of instances. One I want us to take a look at just for a quick second. It's in Matthew chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. When Jesus gets baptized, it says the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove. So there's the Spirit of God. Then a voice from heaven said, "This Jesus is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." So the Spirit of God descends like a dove. The God, uh, God the Father speaks, this is my son, to Jesus, God the Son. And we see all three of them interacting in this really interesting moment when Jesus chooses to obey 
God's design and purpose by being baptized. We'll discover something about that later. One of the arguments that I've heard is that Jesus has never claimed to be God himself. And although we might survey scripture and we might never see Jesus explicitly saying the words, I am God, just like everything else we look at in the Bible, we have to understand the context in in which it's happening, in which the story is taking place. And in the Jewish culture of the day, they used language differently than we use language. And there are several instances where Jesus speaks and acts in such a way that he is actually saying, I am God. There's one instance in particular where a paralyzed man, Jesus, he comes to Jesus for healing and Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And everyone says, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, anyone can forgive sins. He says, okay, to prove to you that I can forgive sins, I heal you. Get up and walk. And in that moment, he's saying to the people who said only God can forgive sins, yeah, because I'm God. There's also another instance in John 5, 18, where Jesus is identifying God as his father. And it's not like he's saying like, yeah, God is like my dad. No, 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 no. He is my father. I come directly from him. And in the Jewish culture of that day, they understood that when a son showed up, you treated the son as though you would treat the father of a, you know, if, if it's a, it's a noble man or someone respectable in the community, you treat the son the same way that you treat the father, because they, in essence, are a perfect representation of the father. They themselves are the father. And so John 5, 18 actually says they wanted to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. So we have scripture that identifies three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this might be confusing for us. How do we reconcile? How do we wrap our heads around this idea that one, the one true God is one being with three unique, independent persons who function in perfect and complete harmony, unity with each other? tapping into each of their strengths and relying on each other uh, to, to fulfill their purposes in their one mission as God. But Elohim is a plural noun. So how is this possible? Three in one persons in perfect harmony with each other. <clears throat> We're going to approach it today from considering and looking at ourselves. Just Take a step back and consider yourself today. You are primarily made up of three qualities. We're going to call them three persons that make up who you are. The person of your intelligence, the person that is your body, and the person that is your emotion. Each of those aspects of who you are are unique. Your intelligence is fully who you are. It's just your intelligence. It's not someone else's intelligence. All of your intelligence is you. But it is not 
your emotions, your intelligence is your logic and your reason, the way you interpret the world and organize how everything makes sense. Then you have your body. Your body is fully you. It's not somebody else's body. It's your body. Now you might say, I'm not just my body. If I lost my arm, I would still be me. Yes, but you would be lacking something. And there would be a part of you missing I'm more than my body. I have logic and intelligence and emotions. Yes, yes. But if you didn't have your body, you'd be missing something. This is pretty fundamental as we get into like resurrection. God gives us resurrected bodies because our bodies are a pretty fundamental part of who we are. And then you have your emotions, the way you feel about the world, other people, even yourself. And your emotions are fully you, who you are. They're not anybody else. So you have three persons in your one being. You have your intellect, your logic, your reasoning. And you have your body. And you have your emotions. Each unique and separate from each other. Each fully you but all collectively you. Your intelligence is not your body, your body is not your emotion, and your emotion is not your intelligence, but they all are who you are. They all make up your one being. Not always do all three of these qualities of our being work in perfect harmony. Maybe you are a runner, and you're in a marathon, you hit that 10-mile mark, and your body is just about to give out, and your mind, your intellect says, all right, we need to stop, and your body says, no, we're going to do this, and you you break that uh, that barrier. There's a word. I'm not a runner, so I don't know what it's called. Runners, tell me. What is that word, that thing you break, that you just, like, something switches inside you, and you're like, no, I can make it the rest of the way, and then your body just takes over despite how you feel and what's logical in that moment. Sometimes you might get caught up in logic and an argument or a debate and your intelligence just takes over. Sometimes your emotions rule you and you might find yourself breaking down, weeping, sobbing, and you can't control it. It's in these moments where the persons of our being aren't operating in perfect harmony and unity with each other. They each have their own agenda. Maybe we've heard it before. The heart says yes, but the mind says no. There's this conflict within our persons. Paul even talks about it in the Bible. I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. There's this tension among our persons, our intellect, our body, and our emotions. But God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who work in perfect harmony and unity with each other. Now, for someone to fully know you, they're going to have to learn about these different aspects of who you are, your intelligence, your body, and your emotions. And they can't learn about who you are simply by sitting and having coffee with you. For someone to understand you intellectually, They're going to have to have an intellectual conversation. They're going to have to put themselves in a mind frame that says, okay, I'm going to learn about this person from a logical perspective. I'm going to learn how they reason and how they think and how they organize reality. 
You can do this by reading their Facebook posts, having a conversation with them, reading a letter they wrote, maybe even sometimes reading the books that they like to read. This is how we get to know someone intellectually, by putting ourselves in a headspace where we're ready to think using logic and reason and unlearn about that person through that lens. But you're not going to learn about someone's intellect by shaking their hand, giving them a fist bump, or playing basketball with them. Those are ways that you get to learn about a person's body, the way their body moves, the way their body interacts with the rest of the world, the way their body shifts and works, the way that it doesn't work. You can learn that through handshakes, fist bumps, basketball, maybe a WWE wrestling match. And the Bible says the ultimate way to know someone physically is sex designed for husband and wife, the ultimate knowing of someone. But you won't learn about someone's intellect by shaking their hand or by looking at a picture of their body. Each of these elements of the person you have to learn in unique situations in very different ways. And then we come to your emotional person. The emotional person is a little bit tricky because you can't simply learn about a person's emotions by having a conversation or physically interacting with them. To understand and know a person their emotional person, we have to experience emotions within ourselves. We might be able to hear someone talk about their emotions and describe what it's like to feel happy, sad, elated, terrified. But until we experience those things ourselves, we don't know that aspect of a person. And so when they come to us and say, well, I feel sad until you have experienced despair yourself, you can't know what that person is experiencing, the emotional person in front of you. So each of these character quality persons of us, our intelligence, our body, and our emotions are unique, separate persons and they can only be known in unique, separate ways of us interacting with other people or other people interacting with us to get to know us. And this is a great way for us to look at how we get to know God as a multitude of persons. Elohim, the plural noun for God, in Genesis God is revealing himself to be a plurality of persons throughout the book of Genesis, but he's interacting with individuals or small family groups, and the way that he interacts with humanity is very unique to the rest of the Bible in Genesis. So Moses writes Genesis almost as context, so the Israelites understand what's about to happen when God liberates them from Egypt and their relationship with God, the dynamic significantly changes from a one being a plurality of persons interacting with individuals and families now to the godhead being king over israel it's called a theocracy that's their government is run and led by god 
and their relationship with God is about to change. So Moses writes Genesis as the context, setting the stage for what's about to happen. We always say here at Dumb Christian, context is crucial, right? So make sure you're understanding the context. Moses gives them that as they step into a relationship with God where he begins to reveal the three persons of God so that we can truly, fully know who he is. And Exodus through Malachi, the whole Old Testament except for Genesis, is basically revealing primarily the person of the Father. Now, when we hear the word Father, sometimes we might have ideas that don't necessarily sit well with us. Maybe we just think sperm donor, or we think absent, or drunk, or abusive, or maybe just emotionally absent. Um, Some of us might have really fond ideas of what it looks like to have a good, loving father. But remember, we have to get the context. So what does it mean that God is revealing himself as a good, loving father in the context in which these words are written? In the Jewish culture, a good, loving father has three primary responsibilities. To provide, protect, and discipline. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, but basically it comes down to, are you making sure, a good loving father makes sure that his family has everything they need, food, shelter, clothing. A good loving father provides for his family. A good loving father also protects his family from the bullies at school and the pervert down the street, the meth dealer who makes his way through the neighborhood once a month. A good loving father protects his family, but a good loving father also disciplines his children. And this can get kind of touchy because maybe our idea of discipline actually was demonstrated through acts of punishment, where it's this idea of, well, you got this coming to you, you're going to get what you deserve. But discipline is not punishment. Discipline is the way that God molds, shapes, and moves us to be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. This is the discipline of a good, loving father. He provides, he protects, and he disciplines. And for 1,500 years, this is how God is revealing himself to the nation of Israel and really the rest of the world in the way that he provides for this people group. He provides their needs in the desert. He provides sustenance. He provides um, wealth and provision for for this nation, his children. He also protects them from invading armies and from their enemies until... They rebel and disobey, and then he disciplines. And for 1,500 years, we see this recycled pattern of provision, protection, and discipline. Provision, protection, and discipline. It is a pattern, just like a loving father continually repeats this process. It doesn't just end at discipline and say, well, I'm done, but it actually, the design of discipline is to bring us back into that unity so that he can once again provide and protect. So it actually takes us several centuries to really understand and know these qualities of the Father. God says the best way for them to know the Father is for us to walk through 15 centuries 
of provision, protect, and discipline. Now, even though we have most of the Old Testament is revealing the person of the Father, we will always, we still catch glimpses of the Son and Holy Spirit littered throughout the Old Testament. Because even though the Father is unique in his personhood, he is inescapably connected to the Son and to the Spirit because they are all one. Then we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1, and these reveal the person of God, the Son, in Jesus. And God knows the best way for us to get to know the person of God, the Son, is through physical interaction, 33 years of high fives, hugs, back knee, and B.O., and feeling the wounds in his hands inside. They experience his bodily death. They experience his bodily resurrection. And to know the Son, it takes 33 years in a body. This is the best way for God to reveal and for us to know this person. Yet, during these books and these passages where we reveal and get to know God the Son, it's littered with glimpses of the Father and the Spirit. Because although God the Son is unique and independent, he is inescapably connected to the Father and the Spirit because they are one. And then we get to Acts chapter 2 through Jude, basically the rest of the Bible except for Revelation. And here Jesus ascends to heaven and he says, I'm going to send the, the third person of God, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you. Because God knows that the best way for us to reveal, to come to know this person of God, God the Holy Spirit, is only through experiencing the Spirit. Scripture says you can't know the mind of God until you have his Spirit in you. And we're promised, we're guaranteed in Scripture that if we confess, believe, repent, and are baptized at baptism, there is the scriptural promise, a guarantee you get to receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. He takes up residence inside you so that he can reveal himself to you, teach you more about who God is, to exercise the power of God in you. It's that quality of God, that person of God, that you can't fully know until you experience. And so the rest of the New Testament is authors and apostles, people who have firsthand accounts of Jesus walking in the power of Holy Spirit, recording what it is that Holy Spirit is teaching them, trying to put into words what they are learning about God, the Holy Spirit. And yet, even throughout this revelation of the Spirit, it is littered with glimpses of the Father and the Son, because although Holy Spirit is unique in his personhood, he is inescapably connected to the Father and the Son because... They are one. I do not believe that God is 
a person with a body, an intellect, and emotions. I, I don't think God looks like us. I do think we look like God. It's kind of like one of those, a rectangle is a square, but a square isn't a rectangle kind of things. And although we might be able to maybe kind of wrap our heads around this three-in-one God by looking at ourselves, our intellect, our body, and our emotions, and although we may never be able to fully wrap our heads around this idea of the Holy Trinity— This source gives us revelation of who this Godhead is and each of his persons and how we can interact with and understand him. And that is the Bible, an invitation to know God. And I have been your host, the dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time. Guys, seriously, thank you so much. I hope that this wasn't more confusing for you, but that it maybe helped make the idea of God as three in one just a little more tangible and relatable as he wants to engage and relate to us. Leave us a like, smash that bell. I think an angel gets its wings every time you do. Uh, Leave a comment, a review. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Those things in the Bible that might be confusing to you. Share this with your friends, your brothers, and your sisters. Let's not go it alone, and we'll catch you guys later. Love you guys. (laughs) 